Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's Panorama has been trusted in over 3 million pregnancies and was recently validated in the largest prospective NIPT study demonstrating improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions. Visit natera.com forward slash 22Q to learn more. Today we are going to be talking about, oh, one of those things that's kind of a doorway in genomic medicine, genome sequencing at birth. And I think some people see it as the, the doorway to this land of opportunity, and some people see it as a doorway to a dystopia, but it's, it's, so it's like either the holy grail or this giant disaster, but, it's, but a lot of people talk about it. We've never really done it. So now we have some people that are actually trying it out. Here to talk with me about this today, it's Amy McGuire. Amy is the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. She holds both a PhD and a law degree and works as an advisor, works with or as an advisor to many high-profile organizations, including the Human Genome Research, the Hastings Center, uh, the Geisinger Research, the people who give out the X Prize, so that's cool, et cetera, et cetera. Amy researches ethical and policy issues related to emerging technologies with a particular focus on genomic research, personalized medicine, and the clinical integration of novel neurological devices. Novel neurological devices, I want to get back to that, even though it's not what I'm supposed to be talking about today, because that's just intriguing. But hi, Amy, sticking to the program. Welcome yes, to the Beagle. Thank you. It's great and to I'd be like here. To, yeah, thanks. I'd like to ask you about your work with BabySeq and the big BabySeq question. Should we be routinely doing genome sequencing on babies at birth? So you were one of the authors of a recent article about genome sequencing of healthy newborns, um, that perpetual hot topic. Um, so before I ask you what you found out, tell me where you began. If, if you go back 10 years, were you looking forward to the day when we all got sequenced at birth? What did you imagine behind that door, precision medicine or the dystopia? Um, I was probably more on the dystopia side a little bit. Um, if I go back 10 years, I think there was anticipation. I'm, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist, and I, I think there was a lot of anticipation that this was going to be happening. So I didn't spend too much time, you know, uh, gazing into this dystopia. Um, I worried a little bit about it, but I, I also kind of set out to try to say, okay, if we're going to be doing this, because um, I thought it was probably an, an, an inevitable at some point. How can we do it in the best way possible and how can we do it in a way that's actually beneficial and um, and not, you know, mitigates as much risk as possible? Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. We're going to be sitting on this hot, wet planet, sequencing babies at birth. Like I can see it like it's all happening. What are, what are we going to do? So the the baby seek group, this was always the plan. Right. Have you have you been a part of that from day one? Yeah, so this the BabySeq project was part of a um, initiative that was funded through the National Institutes of Health. It was called the Newborn Sequencing in Genomic Medicine and Public Health, or NSITE program. 
Um, and they really sought out to fund several different sites that would set up different types of studies and experiments to explore the implications, challenges, and opportunities associated with the possible use of genomic sequencing information in the newborn period. So they wanted to do that in a controlled environment, they wanted to do it in a research environment, and they wanted to um, see how we could do it in a way that would be safe and um, might provide um, benefit to families. I, I remember when BabySeq got funded, it was funded along with a, a number of other proposals, most of which looked at using sequencing in the newborn phase or even prenatally, but for chill, for, for, for babies where there was a, 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 no, a health issue, um, sick kids or or uh, someone when there was a, something shown prenatally. And I think that's been a roaring success, right? I, I, I think there's nobody in the field now who doesn't agree that genomic sequencing for sick kids is a, is a step forward. What I recall about BabySeq is there are some issues getting the program off the ground. Um, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of hypothetical interest among parents and then not that many parents agreed when it wasn't hypothetical. Yeah, so BabySeq, so we, what we really wanted to do is we wanted to set up a randomized clinical trial that was designed to explore the benefits and risks associated with genomic newborn screening, not just for sick babies, but also for babies that were um, born healthy and were in the well baby um, nursery. And so we had sort of these two arms of the study. We had babies who were in the NICU and babies who were in the well baby nursery. Um, and they were, uh, if they enrolled in BabySeq, they were randomized to either receive uh, standard newborn screening, which, which most babies uh, receive at birth, um, and it's a heel prick, and, and they test for certain sort of metabolic conditions at birth that, that are uh, highly treatable. Um, and also we did sort of more extensive family history taking with those families in the control arm. And then we added on top of that for those in the experimental arm, this genomic newborn um, sequencing. And we really wanted to look at sort of um, the outcomes between uh, the two arms in the two different cohorts. Um, you're absolutely right, Laura, that when we, prior to doing this, we were sort of like, well, are people gonna wanna sequence their babies? I mean, this is something that like, I think when people um, typically think of sequencing their babies, I don't know, for me at least, maybe it ages me, but I immediately think of the movie Gattaca from 1997, where, you know, Ethan Hawke is, it, the movie starts with him being sequenced at birth and then reading out this sort of risk report of all the things that he's going to have and that he's going to die of heart disease at age 32 or something to that effect. And it it impacts all of his ability to access social you know, benefits, get jobs, you know, those sorts of things. And it's all about sort of that dystopia uh, doorway that you were talking about before. And I think a lot of people think about that. And we were really concerned, like, are people going to want this information on their child? Um, and I will say, caveat, that the type of information they were giving in Gattaca, first of all, is not the type of, it's, it was much more uh, blown up in terms of its determinism than I think we can actually um uh, say is is reality uh, scientifically, but also it's the it's a different type of information than we're giving back in BabySeq. Um, so we did a survey, a hypothetical survey of parents um, in these different hospital settings, and said, "Would you want to participate in a study like this?" And a large proportion of them said, "Yes, I'd be very interested in this." But when it came down to it, and we finally got the study approved and started to recruit. Um, we had sort of very low uh, enrollment rates, and I think a lot of people were hesitant. And I think some of that was concern 
about doing sequencing on their newborn. And a lot of it was just that parents, new parents tend to be very overwhelmed. And the study was a little bit burdensome. We had them completing multiple surveys and coming back for multiple visits. And I think a lot of people felt like I just had a baby, I'm overwhelmed, I'm trying to figure this out. And I just am not in a place to participate right now. And so what you were reporting on originally, largely monogenic diseases, monogenic recessive diseases, but also carrier status, right? Some pharmacogenetic results, I think, right? That's right, yes. Um, And then at some point during the process, this was modified to add a limited number of adult onset conditions. So, you know, you work in bioethics, you know that that's a a hot potato. Um, Was that controversial within the group as a decision to add adult onset? And I don't mean controversial, like throw somebody under the bus. I don't mean that at all. I mean, like, was it heavily debated or did everybody say like, this is what we should do? No, it was heavily debated. Um, And I think everybody, there was no, there were, there were people who were like adamantly, yes, this is what we should do. And people who were like adamantly, no, I think all of us were very torn about whether this was the right decision or not. Um, So, you know, to kind of understand the decision. So you're right. Initially for BabySeq, um, we were returning just only a a childhood onset um, uh, information, like so information about diseases that that present in childhood that are either, either highly penetrant um, or they're actionable and at least moder- moderately penetrant. So, you know, there's probably either in, there's utility in having the information or you can actually do something with it um, during childhood. So what actually happened was the reason we didn't originally write the protocol to include adult onset conditions is that there is kind of general consensus among professional societies and in the literature that children under the age of 18 should not receive genetic testing for adult onset conditions. Um, so you see this largely in in Um, discussions around whether you should test kids, for example, for Huntington's disease gene or for uh, BRCA, which is highly associated with adult onset breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Um, And the general consensus is no, um, unless it's going to alleviate significant psychosocial distress for the family, you should leave that decision to the child when they become an adult. And the idea here is you want to give the child an opportunity to express their own autonomous um, preferences for whether they want that information and give them an opportunity to sort of have this this open future. Um, and so that's how we started the study um, by not reporting those findings. Um, and the IRB and the FDA also were very much in agreement that we should not report those findings to um, to babies who were enrolled in BabySeq. However, sort of during the course of the study, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics had sort of this position statement that came out that some of us who were part of the study were were on the committee that generated this this position statement. Um, And it came up with a list of what was originally 56 genes. Now it's, I think, 73 genes. And these were things that um, the committee felt like should be interrogated and the results should be returned to all patients who are undergoing genome or exome sequencing. And what was what's on that list are things that are um, highly actionable variants, and some of them are adult onset um, are, are for adult onset conditions. And so, for example, like the BRCA gene that I was just referencing is included in that list, that ACMG uh, gene list. Uh, I, I remember when that when that came out in 2000? I think it's 13 uh, or 15. Maybe I don't remember the yeah, exact. But when that when that first came out, uh, there was very strong language 
about interrogate this for everybody, including for children. Uh, and one of the reasons given was the information may not be immediately valuable to the infant, but it's it's these are hereditary conditions, so it's going to be in one of the parents, and it's immediately avail uh, um, it's immediately valuable to the adults, and they, this may be the only way that they find out. And that there was like a mini rebellion in um, the ACMG, and a year later they changed that recommendation to say parents could have an opt-out on it, right? Like the, you, you should offer parents an opt-out. But that, that was uh, debated when those recommendations came out. Yes, it was very, very highly debated. And, and there was that change in sort of being sort of a, a recommendation for kind of um, mandatory reporting to one where people could choose if they wanted um, the information in, these, in, in the list. Um, and so people can opt in or out that, that it was designed primarily for clinical genetic testing. Um, but we felt like it, it applied to, you know, that we could think about it as a framework for the research study. Um, and what happened in BabySeq actually was we were going along just fine and rolling patients and, and doing sequencing. And we had one case, um, where, Somehow, and I'm, I still don't fully understand how, but we incidentally, the laboratory incidentally discovered that one of the children in our study had a BRCA mutation, a BRCA mutation. Um, and, you know, there was some debate about maybe they shouldn't have been looking for that. Why did, they, why did it even come up if it wasn't part of our, um, our sort of list of genes that we were interrogating? But, but it did come up and they, they now have, had this information. Um, and when they had done sort of confirmatory testing, it was also discovered that mom carried the mutation. Um, and it was unclear from the medical record whether mom was aware of her risk of breast or ovarian cancer. So we had to decide at that point in time, like we have this outlier case, what do we do about this? Do we disclose this information to the parents when we told them we weren't going to be looking for these sorts of things? Um, and you can imagine we had many uh, long discussions about what to do. Um, and we felt like, you know, ultimately it was really important for mom to know um, her risk if she didn't already have it. And this goes back to sort of the opportunistic type of screening that you were referring to, which was one of the justifications in the ACMG guidelines um, for including adult onset conditions, which is that it's, it's sort of opportunistic screening for um, parents who might not otherwise have that screening done if they don't have a full family history or they're adopted or they're, you know, they, they have the wrong family history or something to that effect. Um, so we went back to the IRB and said, we really want to contact this mom and let her know of her risk. And then we had a long debate with the IRB because they're like, well, maybe you should be looking at this for everybody. And we were sort of, you know, went back and forth on that. And we ultimately decided that within the context of this controlled research study that we were going to offer people adult onset um, information about adult onset conditions. And in fact, we made it a part of participation in the study. So those who had already enrolled, we went back to them and gave them an option about whether they wanted to receive this information for their child or not. And the majority of them decided they did want it. Um, and then we um, included it in the consent process for those who were pro you know, prospectively enrolling in the study, that this is some of the types of information that you would get back. Isn't it interesting, uh like as a bioethicist, isn't it interesting how different it feels to have information in hand instead of literally, you know, in the book right there that you haven't read? You know, they, you, it was always there on all of these people. 
But suddenly, if it's in your hand, I, I, I think the clinicians, researchers are incredibly uncomfortable being the custodians of information uh, that pertains to somebody else. Yeah, rightfully so, I think. And that was a big part of, so I was on the ACMG committee that came up with the guidelines about um, return, you know, what, what information should be returned and to whom. And that was a big part of our discussion. And from my perspective, I said, the ethics turns on the science. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of debate about is, what is this analogous to? Is it analogous to sort of an incidental finding, like you do a, you do a, a X-ray and you see something? Um, or is it, is it like you actually, and, and some people argued it's analogous to that. Some of the scientists did other scientists would say, no, it's not like that because you actually have to set up your parameters and search for these things. And if you don't set up your parameters and search for them, then you wouldn't ever see them. And so it was a question of like, is this, I have the information and now I have to decide if I'm going to give it back, which I think there's a strong case that you should give that information back if you have it, because it raises a whole bunch of conflict for the health professional who has health-related information that's potentially actionable for somebody that they're not um, disclosing to them, to is it I'm turning a blind eye? Like I I could very easily have this information. I'm just not going to look at it. I'm just going to kind of put my hand up and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to see that piece of it. I, I can't it, see you. I yeah. can't see you. Yeah. Like it's more complicated than that. And you actually have to hunt for it and you actually have to sort of do additional work. And, and I think a lot of the debate about this, which continues to this day, really turns on where you fall on that question. Um, yeah. Those, those analogy wars that you talk about, yeah. there's a few subjects. It's, it's like genetic engineering. There's another set of analogy wars. Are you comparing it to, 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 performance enhancing drugs, you're comparing it to piano lessons, you know, so uh, the analogy doesn't so much clarify, I think, personally, how to understand it as it clarifies where somebody already stands, you know, which analogy they pick. Um, But I do think it's so universal to be uncomfortable with having the information literally in hand and not giving it out that that probably speaks to some impulse for the good, right? Let the, like, there's a reason we're so uncomfortable. Um, yeah, and I don't think it's just about discomfort. Um, I think, you know, we, healthcare providers are put in uncomfortable situations all the time, and it's kind of part of the, the territory. But I do think that there's, it, it raises issues of, of professional integrity and, and sort of fidelity and what their, what their fiduciary responsibilities are to patients, which is, you know, I, I've, you've put your trust in me to, um, you know, act in your in your best interest uh, and to do things that would benefit you. And if I have information sitting with me um, that I think is important for you to know for health related reasons, because there's something that we ought to do about it, um, I should at least offer it to you. Uh, you know. See, audience, I told you she was also a lawyer. And, <laughs> you know, she used the word fiduciary responsibility. So there you go. <laughs> Give it away. Yeah. OK, so. So great. So you were you were this is what you looked at. And there's a, a lot of information that you you know, we could that this would produce uh, could look at information on how, how often we found interesting findings, what what they were and so on. But particularly in this study, you were looking at the impact on families, right, of receiving that information. Um, what were you what were you searching for there? What what expectations did you have uh, in terms of how it would be for families? 
Yeah. So, you know, this goes back to kind of what are the concerns going into this? And and it's, you know, I, I would say my concern, my concerns generally around genetic information have less to do with the information itself and more to do with what we as human beings do with that information and how it impacts us and how it um, how we use it either consciously, subconsciously, or, you know, implicitly, explicitly, whatever. Um, And so one of the things that we were really interested in here is if you get this type of information about your perfect little newborn child, right, what does it do in terms of your parenting of that child and in terms of your relationship with that child and in terms of your relationship with your partner um, and in terms of your own sort of psychosocial well-being? So we had done uh, this this project, this project team had worked on other projects very similarly designed, um, looking at the psychosocial impacts of getting genetic information for yourself as an adult. And for that, we were really focused on um, sort of does it cause anxiety or distress if people get sort of information about their genetic risk of certain diseases or monogenic disease or whatever. Um, and not just us, several other groups have looked at that. And I would say just to summarize consistently across the literature, we really haven't found significant levels of anxiety or distress, at least approaching clinical cutoffs um, for people getting all different kinds of genetic information back. We as a human species are very adaptable and we tend to sort of adjust um, uh, psychologically adjust to the information that we receive. Now, there are some outliers and there are some people who find this very distressing. Um, but if you look at it sort of across the studies, um, statistically, we don't find differences. But then I started to think, well, maybe there are sort of subtler or more subtle kind of um, changes that happen. Does it change how people kind of feel about themselves? Does it change how they feel about their child? There had been some interesting studies that had looked at like sort of child vulnerability so if you get certain types of information about your child, um, there, there was an interesting study I read a while ago, so I can't remember the details of it, but it was around um, testing for sickle cell. And it was like, if your child tests positive, do you treat them differently by like being more concerned, bringing them to the doctor more frequently, like they get a little cold and you're sort of more of an anxious parent, um, those sorts of things. So this was kind of a first step to try to interrogate some of that. Um, and we wanted to look at does receiving the kinds of information that we were giving back to the babies and to the parents of the babies and baby seek um, disrupt the parent-child relationship in any way or the parent-partner uh, relationship or in any way or the parent's own psychological distress. And that was in addition to wanting to actually look at like what were the medical benefits, like what, what were we actually finding through the sequencing and what, what might the medical benefits of that be for the baby? Right. Um, so, and yeah. what did you, and you, the summary is, not so much in terms of distress, right? That's that's the, yeah, the summary was that over time um, we did not find uh, significant um, differences between our control arm and our sequencing arm in terms of um, parent-child bonding, so attachment and and bonding and and other skills like that, or in terms of um, parent conflict with each other um, or or. Uh, psychosocial distress for the parents themselves. Over the baseline distress and bonding issues associated with having a newborn for 
everybody. Right. That's right. And of course, those who were in the who had babies in the NICU had higher, you know, higher levels of stress and things like that. But um, but yeah, but what we were we were using each individual as their own control. Right. So we did surveys at enrollment um, prior to getting this genetic information back. And then we did surveys sort of immediately after getting the information back and then three months after that and 10 months after that. Um, so we were able to look over time whether one individual's uh, responses changed. So, you know, you mentioned the study of adults, and the and this is probably at least one of the ones you're talking about, the REVEAL study that looked at people getting information on APOE status in terms of Alzheimer's disease, so higher or lower risk for Alzheimer's disease. And the REVEAL study was really groundbreaking in that when it came out, nobody, everyone had said, maybe people are going to kill themselves. Maybe people are going to be unable to deal with this information. And many people said, no, they'll be able to. But but nobody had any data, right? Nobody had any evidence. And so the reveal study was great because we had nothing. And then we had this study of individuals who were concerned about their risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's where they were involved in the study. I, I, I think it was very significant. But I also think with reveal, there was this element of people saying, Oh, reveal proves that people can handle scary genetic results and we're done, right? Like that, that, I cannot count the number of papers I have seen where they say people can handle genetic information and then they just cite the reveal study. Um, whereas I think even people involved with the reveal study would say, say it was more of a beginning than a definitive statement. There were lots of caveats. It wasn't a diverse group of people. And I mean that in the normal sense that all of our research fails in terms of being diverse group of people, but also they were all people who were really concerned going in, right, about their um, Alzheimer's status. They weren't grabbed off the street and told, you know, so which could happen if you're a healthy person being uh, sequenced and you didn't have any sense. So it, it, it was both important and maybe I felt like it became the be all and the end all. So asking here, do you sort of think like, okay, this study um, captures a lot of what we were looking at, or do you feel that this is maybe just the beginning and that there's a lot of other aspects of this? You, you sort of feel now like this is what we're going to find? I think this is very much just the beginning. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the reveal study has gone on to, you know, it's been over a decade of, of interrogation in, in different ways. Um, for those types of results and those different populations and things like that. Um, and this is really just the very beginning of this. We only sequenced 159 newborns. Um, you know, I mean, it, that, that was half of our, our uh, cohort, but uh, we only sequenced 159 newborns. They were, it was a very biased population. They were all from the Boston area. Um, and I will say, you know, one of the PI of the reveal study is Robert Green, who was really one of the PIs of this study. So this is very much a continuation of even that that line of questioning um, in many ways. Um, so I think, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of diversity. It was a biased sample. There was a very small sample size. Um, and we only used, you know, we didn't we didn't look at everything that you can possibly look at. And we only looked at sort of the first year of the baby's life. Um, so there's in so many ways the um, things that we need to do to sort of build on this. We need to look more longitudinally, for one. We need definitely need to expand to larger sample sizes and much more diverse patient populations. 
Um, and we're trying to do all of that in what has recently been funded, which we're calling Baby Seek 2, um, which is another grant that's really designed to address some of those limitations and see if we get similar, similar results. Um, the other thing I'll say is, is I think one thing that in doing, you know, in participating a little bit, knowing about the Reveal study and then participating in MedSeq and, and some of the follow-ups to Reveal, um, a lot of the outcome measures that we use that are validated scales um, are really crude measures. So they're looking for things like um, clinically significant levels of anxiety or depression. Um, and, and that's what I was trying to say before is like, you may not, you know, we did think our hypothesis was you give people APOE status and they're going to, you know, get clinically depressed or commit suicide, jump off a building or, you know, whatever. And, and that didn't, that did not ring true um, based on the data we have. And I think we now have enough data from enough studies to say that we don't think that will ring true um, based on the kinds of information we're currently giving back, but that might change with new types of information. So increasingly companies and even clinically, um, we're starting to give back polygenic risk score for much more controversial things like, you know, behavioral traits or, um, you know, addiction, uh, psychiatric conditions, things like that. Um, I think that becomes a little, you know, I don't know how people are going to respond to that information. That's that's risk information. Um, it certainly is not determinative of whether you're going to end up a certain way or have a certain condition, but it's risk information. And I don't know how people are going to make sense of that. Um, so one thing is evolving types of information. The second thing is, are there sort of more subtle effects beyond kind of our crude clinical uh, assessments of anxiety and depression, for example, like, are there more subtle sort of, I just kind of have lower self-esteem or I, you know, I don't know what they are, but I think there's more sort of um, uh, less prominent. And then the third thing I'd say is I think we do need to pay attention to the outliers. Um, so just because these studies show that the majority of participants or there's no statistically significant difference between groups um, are, you know, don't suffer these things. There, there are outliers and there are people who do, um, have very negative uh, responses, and we can't leave them behind. So you collected data on how many kids were picked up here. And speaking of Robert Green, he was quoted as saying it was a startling number of babies were identified with having a, a clinically significant result. I think it was 9% of the... 11. So 18 of the 159 newborns. Yeah. yeah. So so that startling number. So that's higher than we would have a priori expected. Um, and do you think that means there's two obvious explanations for that? One is that more children have identifiable conditions, clinical conditions based on specific monogenetic changes, or that we're worse than we thought about it predicting phenotype. In other words, that our observations of children are the same, not that many are affected, but that we're picking up kids who are not gonna be sick, but have these genetic differences. Were you able to distinguish between those two possible explanations? So we haven't been able to distinguish because um, we haven't done the longitudinal studies, right? So, so you're right. 11% of our of our newborns who were sequenced had findings that were predictive of monogenic disease. A large, a much larger number had like carrier status and things like that, but that's to be expected. 
Um, so, but it's predictive of monogenic disease. And I don't think, I think we now have to wait and see how many of those kids actually develop symptoms to know, to answer your question, right? So is, is it that we're um, sort of identifying a group of children who will never get sick and they just have sort of genes that put them at higher risk, but, but they're not pen- fully penetrant and, um, and therefore they, they will remain healthy. Um, or are we picking up earlier uh, those who are going to eventually get sick and potentially forestalling the really um, sort of what can be a very traumatizing experience of going through a lengthy diagnostic odyssey of something's not quite right with my kid, but I don't know what it is and I don't know what, you know, what it can be attributed to. And now I have to go through all these different tests and try to figure it out. Um, and so I think the hope is, is that if you have this information at birth um, for a newborn, that if you start to get symptoms, you'll sort of know at least one avenue to explore um, of perhaps this gene variant that we found is responsible for some of these early symptoms and we can do something to treat it or to, you know, um, to intervene at an earlier stage or to at least forestall that sort of lengthy diagnostic odyssey and get some answers to what's going on. Well, it'll be interesting to see over time. I, I, I don't know yet in my head, um, you know that there will be stories of somebody medicalizing things, you know, the, having a genetic result medicalizing things for a parent that would normally have sort of fallen under the category of this is an idiosyncrasy of my child. And you also know that there will be life-saving moments, right, where they find out something uh, so they realize one step ahead of a disastrous outcome and are able to treat and so on. And both things will happen. And the question in my head is, um, what will be the exception and what will be the rule? Uh, it will be very interesting to see. But I'm glad that you're doing this and doing the second part, because I feel like academics, I mean, this is being done under an academic aegis where we're getting the information, we're finding out about it, and you're willing to to look at all possibilities. And I feel like you're like half a step behind the commercial, no, half a step ahead of commercial forces, like that they will very soon be people, there already are people selling this as a product. And once you get into selling it as a product, yeah, Yeah. they're ahead of us um, in some respects. So there are now companies, so like I said, a lot of it turns on what kind of information you're giving back, right? Um, And how, what's the evidence base behind that um, so, you know, we were giving back only things that are, you know, what, with regard to monogenic disease, we're looking at things that have been classified as pathogenic or likely pathogenic um, findings. Um, that list is changing all the time. Um, genes are getting or variants are getting reclassified all the time. So there's a it's a it's a big moving target. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think once we start to integrate some of that polygenic risk score type testing, um, which we're not we're not doing in BabySeq for sure, um, and we're just starting to do clinically for things like polygenic risk score for scores for like cardiovascular disease. Um, but companies are doing it for a lot more stuff, and so there's companies out there that are you know offering to if you have to do in vitro fertilization, they will do genetic testing on your embryos and um, generate polygenic risk scores for all kinds of different things to help, you know, and people can use that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very different ball of wax. You know, there's one, there's one new Silicon Valley startup that's, that's suggesting even if you don't need IVF, 
do it anyway. So he can do polygenic risk scores on all your embryos. It's, it's yeah. the, the, that's what I mean is sort of the drumbeat yeah. of commercial pressure and commercial hard sell yeah. is on its way. So we need this information like yesterday. Um, so there uh, also in the non-commercial area, uh, I know uh, in U the UK, they're planning a sort of a big initiative of sequencing healthy babies which I read about, and the uh, tagline that stuck out for me in the science article was, five to seven percent of people are born with a rare disease, and many could be treated very early in their life if the disease is detected, said Richard Scott, chief medical officer of Genomics England, a government-funded company. So genome sequencing could help. And he said, these costs have come down so much that now we're at a tipping point where it's wrong not to. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Do you agree with Richard Scott that it's wrong not to do this? Um, I don't think there's sufficient evidence or justification yet for se for sequencing, for newborn sequencing to be integrated into like newborn screening programs where it's, um, you know, basically automatically done as a public health measure run by the state. Um, we did, you know, interestingly, we asked in BabySeq, both of our clinicians and of our parents, whether they thought all newborns should be sequenced. Um, and what we found was that only 80, only 33% of parents and 8% of the clinicians in our study thought that all newborns should receive genomic sequencing at this point in time. Um, and most of them felt really strongly that parental consent should be required um, and that it shouldn't be sort of a public health initiative that, you know, might have an opt out or something like that, like we do for newborn screening. Um, and I think the reasons for this, which which I'm sympathetic to, is that there's just so much uncertainty still around the potential benefits and, and even potential risks. Um, and those risks are, you know, from our, our, our uh, participant population, when we asked them sort of what are those risks, it was really around privacy discrimination, the potential to receive uncertain or unwanted information, the potential psychosocial distress. So, so as we talked about before, like we're starting to, to understand that better, but I think there's still a lot of, of questions about how this is going to play out um, and how that benefit risk sort of calculation um, is going to play out. And I think, you know, honestly, from my perspective, I think the one kind of thing that we I guess the one risk right now that I think is maybe not given enough attention is the uncertainty associated with this. And, you know, it's very interesting. I was just having a conversation with some folks about COVID, which it seems unrelated, but let me tie it to this. Um, and we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, COVID was an opportunity for the public to kind of get a glimpse at how uncertain science is and how messy science is. Because um, they, they really had a front seat to, you know, the process of testing. Huh? It's not working out so well for us, that, that front seat. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just, it gives, I mean, it, it gives a very realistic view of like, it's not so, it's not so cut and dry in science. I mean, we, we might, it's not that we're changing our minds. It's just the evidence is building and the evidence is changing and it's messy and we learn new things and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think that's true with, with genomics as well as we don't, we, we, there's a lot that we, there's a lot more that we don't know than that we do know right now. And it changes very quickly. And so, you know, there can be a lot of confusion around the fact of like, you're telling me something and you're, and you're telling me that you don't know what it means. And that's very frustrating and scary. 
or you're telling me something and you tell me that you think you know what it means. And then you come back to me later and tell me that it actually means something else. And that's very frustrating and scary. And so, you know, I don't I don't think we're ready for prime time on this. I think we need to do a lot more research and we need to sort of the science needs to advance a little bit more. Um, but I do think we're going in this direction. And I think the more we go in this direction, the less sort of scary um, genetic information becomes, because I think people are have really done a much better job in the last decade of being less deterministic and really understanding the complexity of genes are just a really small part of the puzzle. Um, sometimes they're a little bit bigger piece of the puzzles, but oftentimes they're a small piece of the puzzle. And there's a lot more that goes into um, determining somebody's health and, and you know, what they end up being like and things like that. Amy, I only have one more question about seek, but it's a hard, it's a hard one. I warn you, it's a hard question, and it's it, it's actually a different concern than what we've been talking about here because you've just given a, a really great overview of all of the concerns that the individual might have about you know why they might want to have sequencing for the child and might why they might not want to have sequencing for their child. But you're also a public health person and health policy person, right? And we live in a country where we have not been able to protect poor children from obviously preventable harms like lead poisoning, where parents have to start GoFundMes to pay for basic medical care if their child has an emergency and so on. And uh, a friend of mine who worked his whole life in public health said to me recently, I blame following the Human Genome Project, the excitement over precision medicine, um, has in his mind drained away funding for almost every other public health measure in the country. And from that point of view, are you concerned about bringing in genome sequencing because uh, it has the potential to be yet another thing that is uh, an expense, a cost to the system? like? Is that where we should be putting our money as a society, or is that going to tie up more funds that could be more broadly used elsewhere? Yeah, that's a really very good and very difficult question. <laughs> and fortunately, above my pay grade, um, but I can certainly opine about it. Um, you know, I, I agree with you 100% that um, for a lot of individuals, communities, groups of people, um, they have much more basic and sort of um, primary concerns, um, health-related concerns that, you know, they just want to get access to, you know, uh, healthy food and they want to get access to doctors and they want to be able to treat cancer when it, you know, all kinds of things that mental health, mental health is a huge one. There's such a lack of access to mental health resources in, in certain communities and for those who are un, uninsured and underinsured and things like that. Um, so I agree with you. I don't think we should be putting um, a disproportionate amount of emphasis and funding on um, sort of doing genetic testing, for example. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it is important as sort of building a, a future foundation of sort of how we do healthcare, um, and I think that's where the um, some people have, and, and you know, 
people like Francis Collins has been very vocal about this, of, of seeing this as a way to transform the entire sort of way in which we do medicine. Um, and so it, ultimately it's more of infrastructure building from that perspective um, and that all of these things can kind of lay on top of it. Um, but I do think there's a lot more, you know, um, work being done now with attention to like environmental impacts and adverse childhood events and things like that. Um, and I certainly would be supportive of, you know, focusing on those things. And, and I also think when we go into communities, we need to be attentive to what are their needs. Um, you know, we can't just come in and say, we want to, and, you know, we were talking about increasing diversity, um, all kinds of different types of diversity in these studies. And that's super important. But we also need to, like, go into diverse communities and say, we can't just throw this in their face. We need to say, what are your what are the needs of this community and how does this potentially integrate with that? And how can we address those and also, um, you know, in include people from this community in these types of genetic studies. So that's not a very satisfactory answer because I, I don't really have the answer to that. It's a hard question. Um, and I can't say specifically like X number of percentage of the dollars should go here and you know Y percentage of the dollars should go there. Um, and I'm glad I don't have to make that decision, but I think it's a very good point and it's something we need to keep in mind. Well, it's such a good answer because it is true that a part of diversifying studies isn't just doing the same study on more people, but is also about gleaning from other people. What are their priorities? You know, maybe they didn't participate in the study, not simply because these are the people you reached, but maybe those people are like, I have other fish to fry. I have more pressing needs and here's what they are. I, 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 I think it's a great answer. So we are almost out of time and I have promised myself to get back to implantable neurological devices, which has nothing to do with the, with the uh, interview I promised you today, but I'm just so curious, like what is the bioethical work on implantable neurological devices? It actually has quite a bit to do with what we've been talking about today. So, you know, we, we've started looking at uh, doing some research, looking at um, other emerging technologies and the ways that 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 they impact individuals, their relationships, their communities and things like that. And so, you know, one area that we've looked at that is with regard to like um, adaptive deep brain stimulation devices. And those are being implanted on a clinical basis for people with like movement disorders, like Parkinson's disease, um, you know, essential tremor, things like that. Um, and also for psychiatric disorders. So intractable depression, OCD, um, they're, they're, these are people who are really suffering significantly. Um, and one of the concerns that's been in the literature kind of hypothetically is, does implanting sort of these neural devices that stimulate different parts of your brain change sort of who you are as a person? Um, does it change your personality? Does it change your affect in a positive or negative way? And so we've started to look at that from from um, working with some of those studies that are that are um, re researching this. Um, and we've also looked at more policy related issues to that. Uh, one of the areas that we're looking at very closely is how do you um, you know share information um, from those studies as well as from genetic information? You know how do we how do we make information broadly available and still attend to some of the privacy and other concerns um, with regard to that information. So those are those are some of the some of the research that we're doing with regard to the brain, um, but we also have some of it related to genetics. So fascinating. I, I remember people asking the same questions when the SSRIs, the the new generation of antidepressants, became much more commonly used. There was that book, Waiting for Prozac. They were asking exactly the same question about antidepressants. 
am I making you better or am I simply making you a different person, which culturally, you know, this is our ideal of how you should behave and how you should feel and so on. And, you know, where, where were the overlaps? Because obviously they're very sick people who are in a lot of pain, right? So, yeah, and, you know, uh, what we're hearing, which I think is absolutely true. And, you know, um, my mom had Parkinson's for many years and had deep brain stimulation. So this is a very personal, um, you know, uh, question for me. And and my intuition from from knowing her and, and her journey um, is what's kind of bearing out here, which is they're like the disease has changed me. Um, and this is, uh, I have hope that sort of these new treatments might be a way to get myself back. You know, it's, it's, um, it's that sense of like, I've in some ways lost myself to this intractable disease. Uh, my personality has changed. My affect has changed and I, I want to get my, myself back. And there's hope that, um, some of these implantable devices might be able to help with that. Well, I'm no spring chicken, so I can vouch for the fact that life does change you. Life, life does, does change you. And, and, um, the brain changes over time and so on. So it's not, uh, uh, I guess the, the first question there is what is you, what is the unchanging thing that defines you that, that moves through this fascinating area, obviously a whole different podcast, but thank you very much. Cause I just couldn't resist. I was like, I just have to ask that question. And, and thank you for, for coming here today, Amy. This is a really, um, great conversation. I've learned a lot on a, like I said, a perpetual hot topic, which should be a, a, a contradiction in terms, but it really isn't. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun and a uh, delight to always speak with you. Thank you. And I appreciate you listening. Everybody stay safe out there. Take care. Bye. Bye, Amy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's Panorama has been trusted in over 3 million pregnancies and was recently validated in the largest prospective NIPT study demonstrating improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions. Visit natera.com forward slash 22Q to learn more.